law self-defense content you are about to enjoy is presented for general educational purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice. If you are in need of legal advice, consult competent legal counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Hey folks, welcome to our ongoing coverage of the Ahmad Arbery case. Today, the court trying the defendants in the Ahmad Arbery case finalized the questions that would be asked of prospective jurors during general voir dire. Judge Walmsley substantially increased the number of peremptory strikes permitted, and the general voir dire of the first group of prospective jurors began. Let's talk about the juror questions for general voir dire first. Now, the state prosecutors and the defense lawyers had each prepared a list of questions for general voir dire that were presented to Judge Walmsley for his approval, and a great many proposed questions were ultimately not approved by the judge. Before we dive into the specific questions, however, it's perhaps worth clarifying how they will be applied. So apparently over a thousand prospective jurors have been called in this case, with fully 600 of them ordered to report to the courthouse today. These will be filtered through the process of jury selection or voir dire until the court arrives at a panel of 12 seated jurors plus four additional alternate jurors. Now, the first step in this process is general voir dire, in which prospective jurors are first asked questions in groups of 20. These are intended to be hand-raising questions. That is, rather than dive into detailed answers with each individual juror, these questions are intended merely to identify jurors who either obviously ought to be excluded or who need to be flagged for more in-depth questioning on the issues asked about. For example, a general voir dire question might be, are you under the age of 18? Only persons 18 or older are eligible to serve as jurors, so anyone raising their hand to this general question ought not be seated as a juror and would be dismissed. Similarly, a general voir dire question might be, has anyone here ever had prior interaction with any of the lawyers or defendants in this case? Well, anyone raising their hand to this general question need not be automatically dismissed, but they would later be subject to individual voir dire to explore the nature of that prior interaction to determine if it's cause to dismiss them from being seated as a juror. In fact, as a practical matter, we do not want jurors at this stage of general voir dire, while being questioned in groups of 20, to be providing specific and detailed answers to these general questions, because their answers could potentially poison the others in the 20-person pool. For example, if one of the prospective jurors had a prior interaction with a defendant, and that interaction had been that the defendant had slept with the prospective juror's spouse, not only should that prospective juror be dismissed because they themselves would likely be biased against the defendant, we also wouldn't want the other prospective jurors to overhear that explanation because it could unfairly bias them as a whole against the defendant. Instead, the offended prospective juror would raise their hand during general voir dire when asked about prior interaction with the defendant, and then the details of that interaction would be explored in individual voir dire outside the hearing of other prospective jurors. So the questions discussed in court this morning and ruled upon by Judge Walmsley were questions intended for general voir dire. Once we get to individual voir dire, the scope of questioning could be substantially broader depending on the interaction with that individual juror. 
Now, as noted, both the state and the defense had prepared their own sets of questions for this general voir dire. These are questions in addition to the statutorily required questions of jurors, which ask about things like whether a prospective juror is related to any of the parties involved in the case, for example. This morning, each side got to object to the other side's questions, explain their objection, have the other side argue in favor of their own question, and ultimately have Judge Walmsley make a final decision on whether the proposed question would be permitted to be asked during general voir dire. We're going to dive into both sets of those proposed questions, both by the state and by the defense. Okay, let's dive now into the state's questions for general voir dire. Now, interestingly, the, the first of the state's questions to which the defense objected this morning was not actually a question at all. Rather, it was a statement. Specifically, the state wanted to inform the jury that this was not a death penalty case. Now, the state's rationale for wanting to inform the jury of this is that unless Told otherwise, the jury might assume that a murder trial was automatically potentially a death penalty case, and they might be hesitant to vote for a verdict of guilty if they believed execution was a possible punishment. So the state wanted to take that possibility off the table. The defense objection was that making this statement during general voir dire would be likely to cause confusion and raise questions that would complicate the trial. For example, jurors might begin to wonder if this could have been a capital murder case or had been a capital murder case and downgraded when neither of those was the case. Judge Walmsley excluded this statement for purposes of general voir dire, but if the issue were to come up, on individual voir dire with a specific juror, it's likely the parties would be free to explore the issue in greater detail at that point. The state then wanted to ask prospective jurors if they believed that the prosecutors in the case were from Atlanta. Spoiler, they're not. Uh, this appears to be some kind of local political dynamic, raising concern with the prosecution that they might be unfavorably perceived by prospective jurors who necessarily live in Glynn County, as lawyers intruding into their locale from hated Atlanta. This question, by the way, was also excluded by Judge Walmsley. The state also wanted to ask prospective jurors if they or a close relative had ever been involved in a citizen's arrest. The judge excluded this question on the grounds that it was asking about a legal concept. The state also had a series of questions around firearms. Did any of the prospective jurors own firearms? Had they ever used a firearm for a non-sporting purpose? Had they ever had a firearm pointed at them? And so forth. Judge Walmsley excluded the more specific of these questions for purposes of general voir dire, allowing only that prospective jurors be asked if they owned firearms. If they indicated they did, then more specific questions could be asked about that on individual voir dire. And that was really it for the state's questions. And now let's take a look at the defense questions for general voir dire. And the defense had put together a lengthy list of some 30 proposed questions for general voir dire, most of which it seems the prosecution had an objection to, and many of which were ultimately excluded by Judge Walmsley. Now, unfortunately, I've been unable to obtain a copy of the complete defense general voir dire questionnaire, so I'm limited to covering those specific questions that were in turn covered in detail during this morning's proceedings. But the good news is that's a solid chunk of them. Defense question number 10, for example, asked the hand-raising question, does anyone here agree that no one should be allowed to shoot an unarmed person under any circumstances? 
this question was excluded by Judge Walmsley, so will not be asked during general voir dire. Question number 11 asked if anyone agrees that no one should ever put themselves in a situation where they might have to use a firearm to defend themselves. Also excluded by Judge Walmsley. Question number 12 asked if anyone had participated in any demonstrations or marches about the social justice movement. I I believe Judge Walmsley allowed this question. Remember, this is a hand-raising question for general voir dire. So presumably more detail from each prospective juror would who raised a hand to this one would be obtained during individual voir dire. I don't imagine a juror would be dismissed simply for having participated in a social justice protest, uh, unless, of course, it made it impossible for them to be impartial as a juror. Question number 13 asked if any of the prospective jurors supported the Black Lives Matter movement in any way, defining support very broadly to include positive thoughts, financial support, lawn signs, bumper stickers, and so forth. And Judge Walmsley permitted this question. Question number 14 asked if anyone believed that any person who opposed the Black Lives Matter movement was a racist. Judge Walmsley excluded this question. He also expressed concern here about allowing many of these is automatically a racist type questions, of which the defense had several, only because of time concerns. The next two questions, question number 15, asked if anyone believed that the social justice movements and demonstrations had had a positive effect in the community. And number 16, asked if anyone believed this case was important to revealing racism in the community. And Judge Walmsley excluded both of those questions. Question number 17, asked if anyone believed the media had done a fair job covering this case. And Judge Walmsley excluded this question. Question number 20 asked if anyone believed that Confederate flags were racist symbols and also if they believed that the old Georgia state flag, which was based around a Confederate flag motif, was a racist symbol. And Judge Walmsley permitted this question. Question 23 asked if anyone believed that anyone who uses the N-word is racist. This question was preemptively withdrawn by the defense upon stipulation by the prosecution that it would not be made an issue in the case, and so it will not be asked during general voir dire, I guess unless the state opens the door to the question. Question number 24 asked if anyone believed that a citizen should never attempt to detain someone under any circumstances, and Judge Walmsley excluded this question as involving a legal concept and prompting the prospective jurors to prejudge the evidence. Question number 25 asked if anyone believed that a psychiatrist or psychologist could likely find some degree of mental illness in almost anybody, and Judge Walmsley allowed this question. But question 26 asked about the use of psychiatric medications, and Judge Walmsley excluded this question. Now, perhaps most interestingly, defense question number 29 asked if any of the prospective jurors had a concern about their individual safety, reputation, or livelihood if they returned a particular verdict in this case. And Judge Walmsley excluded that question. And here the defense specifically objected, characterizing this question number 29 as perhaps the single most important question in their list and noting the widespread chaos that often accompanied such high-profile, racially energized cases. Judge Walmsley was unpersuaded, however. He would allow prospective jurors to be asked generally if serving would be an exceptional hardship for them, which is one of the most 
common in general of jury questions, but not specifically asked if serving and returning a verdict would make them concerned for the safety of themselves, their family, their reputation, or their livelihood. The court then wrapped up the general voir dire questions discussion by noting that any questions not specifically addressed were deemed admitted. The next interesting thing that happened was the judge substantially increased the number of peremptory strikes. So this is another important issue around voir dire jury selection that took place this morning. The number of peremptory strikes that would be permitted was substantially increased. Now, a prospective juror can always be dismissed for cause, for being a relative of one of the parties, for example, or for being ineligible for jury service due to age or, or felony conviction. And if cause exists, that juror is in effect dismissed by motion of the judge. The parties can also dismiss a prospective juror in the absence of cause, but only a limited number of them. And this is done by using one of their peremptory strikes. By statute, each side in a Georgia criminal trial receives nine peremptory strikes, so nine for the defense and nine for the state. Because of the possibility that the three defendants might not always achieve consensus on whether a particular prospective juror should be struck, Judge Walmsley awarded each of the three defendants three of the nine statutory peremptory strikes. So each defendant owns three peremptory strikes, which they can use or not at their discretion. In a case involving multiple defendants or where selecting a jury might be particularly challenging because of the high profile of the case, as is true here, the trial judge has the discretion to award up to five more peremptory strikes more than the nine required by the statute. This morning, Judge Walmsley decided to award an additional five peremptory strikes to the defense, meaning five more peremptory strikes per each defendant. That means that each of the three defendants now has eight peremptory strikes that they own to use at their own discretion, or a total of 24 peremptory strikes for the defense as a whole. The prosecution was also given additional peremptory strikes, but only three more for a total of 12 peremptory strikes for the state. This afternoon, then shortly after 1 p.m. Eastern time, General Voidier began in this case with the first group of 20 prospective jurors. Judge Walmsley gave some introductory remarks about the case, including a summary of the charges and the parties involved. He was followed by Prosecutor Linda Dunikoski asking the permitted state's general voir dire questions, during which various jurors identified only by number raised their hands in response to various questions. Uh, she, in turn, was followed by defense attorney Jason Sheffield. He's one of Travis McMichael's legal team, uh, who was presumably um, allowed to ask the permitted general voir dire questions of the defense. Unfortunately, while this general voir dire broadcast engaged in the usual practice of keeping the cameras positioned so as to not show the jurors, for much of the general voir dire questioning, they also kept the microphone turned off. As you might imagine, little can be gained from observing voir dire when you can't hear what's being said. Interestingly, the audio was being broadcast for Judge Walmsley's opening remarks and for a portion of Prosecutor Dunikowski's initial general questions, but then the audio was turned off for the remainder of the session. Now, I've had a general sense from Judge Walmsley earlier remarks today that it was his intention that neither video nor audio 
of the prospective jurors would be allowed to be broadcast. And if that's the policy and the temporary audio share today was unintentional, then there will be little point to observing jury selection. Um, my understanding of the intended broadcast policy is sufficiently ambiguous, however, that I'll just have to check in each day and see what's being shared. In any case, we should expect that the combination of general and individual voir dire will take at least a week, perhaps as long as two, in order to seat the final jury of 12 plus four alternates. And if it takes two weeks, that would bring us right to the scheduled start date for the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. As previously mentioned, once the Rittenhouse trial begins, we'll be turning our full attention to that trial uh, and leaving the Ahmad Arbery case to be covered by other people. Now, finally, before I let you all go, last Friday, the defense counsel for Greg McMichael, and this is the husband and wife legal team of Frank and Laura Hogue, they sat for an interview with Court TV in which they laid out the legal defense they intend to present to the jury in this trial. And we can presume this will be the legal defense for all the defendants. Now, there's nothing surprising about the legal defense they plan to offer, but it's always nice to have confirmation from defense counsel themselves that my anticipation of what that defense will be is, in fact, the one they plan to offer. And specifically, Frank Hogue described the legal defense as a predictable combination of lawful citizen's arrest followed by lawful self-defense. That is, that the party's initial actions, their pursuit of Ahmad Arbery, were done in lawful citizen's arrest based upon a reasonable suspicion that Arbery was a felony burglar in flight, and that the actual shooting of Arbery was done in lawful self-defense following Arbery's attack upon Travis McMichael. So I have a brief video of the presentation of that legal defense by Frank Hogue, and here it is. It's only about four minutes long. Well, the defense is pretty plain. I think it's out there. The initial actions by the McMichaels, we will put under the rubric of the citizen's arrest law. They had reasonable and probable grounds, which is the language from the statute, to believe that uh, Ahmaud Arbery was fleeing from the commission of a felony, not necessarily having committed one that very day, it's not required that he has just committed one, and there's no evidence that he had committed one that day, but that they reasonably suspected that he was the guy they had seen on four previous video occasions and one in-person occasion in that house at night after the owner of the house had said on one of those visits he noticed that he was missing about $2,500 worth of electronics equipment from the house. McMichaels uh, knew that, and it was in their minds the day Greg saw Ahmad run past at a pretty good clip from the direction of the house. So at that point, that's when Greg decided we need to detain him so the police can come here and investigate and see who is this guy, what's he doing in our neighborhood, and what has he been doing going in that house on these prior occasions. And it looked to Greg like he was fleeing from someone or something that very day. It didn't look to him like he was out for a Sunday jog. As he said on the body cams contemporaneous with the event that very day, he thought that he was as he put it, hooked up 
and hauling ass, that he wasn't out for a Sunday run. And then when they got in the truck to chase him, to stop him, to let the police come and investigate the matter, uh, the neighbor down the street, Matt Albenzi, who had been on the phone with the police reporting that Ahmad was back in the house, Ahmad saw him, and this is on video, and then he took off running right after he saw Al Benzi on the phone. When Travis and Greg come back out of the house to get in the truck to drive after Ahmad, Matt Al Benzi was down the street in front of the English house making a hand motion with his arm, which conveyed to the McMichaels, there he goes. That's the guy. And of course, Greg recognized him having seen him on the four previous videos. Travis saw him in person on February the 11th, just 12 days prior, at night, at that house. And so he recognized him as well. Um, and so at that point, they were conducting a lawful citizen's arrest under the statute as it existed then. It's since been amended. And it was an attempted citizen's arrest up until the very end when Ahmad turned sharp left at the front right corner of the pickup truck and within a couple of steps he was on top of Travis who had a loaded shotgun and it was apparent to Travis that Ahmad was trying to take the gun from him and so Travis shot him in self-defense. So it starts out as a citizen's arrest case. It ends up as a self-defense case. And we'll be arguing both of those sets of laws in our defense. And there you have it, the legal defense to be presented in this case right from the horse's mouth. Okay, folks, that's all I have for all of you today. I'll plan on another day of live coverage tomorrow in the hopes that there will be useful content for me to cover live if not, we'll keep you apprised of our alternative plans should we need to develop those. So remember, if you carry a gun, so you're hard to kill. That's why I carry a gun. So I'm hard to kill. My family is hard to kill. Then you also owe it to yourself and your family to make sure you know the law so you're hard to convict. Until next time, I remain Attorney Andrew Branca for Law Self-Defense. Stay safe.